Hello, and welcome to Refi Radio. I'm your host, Will Moyo. In partnership with Park Madison Partners, Real Estate Fund Intelligence is bringing you monthly discussions with some of the real estate industry's most innovative voices. On this month's show, we're doing something a little different. We have Nancy Lachine, Park Madison's founder and managing partner, speaking with Matt Sleppin, founder of Terra Search Partners and host of his own podcast, Leading Voices in Real Estate. In this episode, Nancy and Matt have a wide-ranging conversation about their respective career paths, their experience founding their own firms, the state of the real estate industry, and then wrapping up with advice for young professionals starting a career in real estate. And of course, Nancy and Matt discuss their experiences moderating real estate podcasts. We hope you enjoy their conversation. Matt Sleppin, welcome to Innovation in Real Estate. And Nancy, welcome to Leading Voices. So this is my second joint podcast because I did one with Chris Rising, who has his own real estate podcast about a year ago. And now we're doing it together as well because yours is more recently established, but we're kind of talking to the same audiences and the same types of subjects about leaders in real estate. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I'm really excited to be with you here today. I've really admired your podcast. You've been um, an inspiration for me. I love the way you dig into people's stories. And I was excited when you reached out to see if we wanted to do this together. You know, we operate in a huge and interconnected series of businesses. And I hope we can broaden our audience by doing this together. Yeah, I hope so. It's interesting. There's so many podcasts on real estate. And if you Google it, most of the podcasts on real estate deal with single family homes and syndications and how to get rich quick on real estate. And they don't deal with the institutional business that you and I care so deeply about. So there's a few podcasts where people can learn the business, which I think is what, at least for me, what this is all about. This is what we live and breathe every day is the institutional real estate world. But the get rich quick sounds pretty cool too. Just <laughs> I, a different story. The th- two or three things we're going to talk about today, one is just podcasting because it's interesting. And at least from my standpoint, I've learned so much about the real estate world doing this podcast. Second thing is I'm really curious from your standpoint in the marketplace right now as one of the world's leading capital raisers in the real estate investment space, kind of what you're hearing, what investors care about, what they're seeing. And then third subject for me is always a big part of leading voices, which is why do you do this? How did you get here? And how did this become the business that you care so deeply about? And maybe you'll ask me some of the same questions. So somehow we're going to in an hour get through all those topics. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think your career is really interesting, and I'm sure that your audience hasn't had a chance to hear your story. So um, I'd love to talk about that as well. And you also have a really broad view of the business, obviously from a different perspective. So I'd love to hear what's going on in the world of recruiting these days. Cool. And so maybe, Nancy, why don't you give the elevator story of what is Park Madison Partners? Of course. So Park Madison Partners is a real estate capital placement firm. We advise institutional real estate managers, and effectively, we are the bridge between institutional capital and real estate managers. We help raise capital in the form of funds, in the form of separate accounts, in the form of recapitalization. We canvass the market, and we have relationships with a 1,000 or more investors all different kinds, all institutions, uh, public pension funds, corporate pension, uh, corporate pensions, endowments, foundations, sovereigns, investment management, advisors, consultants. 
And we are a boutique, so we work with, you know, five or six management firms a year, and we raise funds for them that help them grow their business and mm-hmm. solve their capital needs. Mm-hmm. And another word for that is placement agent in the vernacular. We are placement agents. And that term's evolved. I've, I've been in this business for a really long time. Right. Um, the idea of a placement agent only came about maybe 20 years ago mm-hmm. when more and more funds started to come to market and it was harder to get this limited, the funnel to get to the institutional investor's attention became steeper. Mm-hmm. And now it's grown again because as the institutional investors themselves have looked for different types of products, we've evolved to service both our clients and the investors in a broader range of products. Got it. Makes sense. And one of the headlines of your business over the past years, we've talked about this together, is there's always been the large bulge bracket firms who are the investment firms. And now it really is dominated by Blackstone and Brookfield, Starwood, I guess, and a couple of others. And you don't represent them. You're representing more niche strategies or midsize or smaller companies. Is that how that works? I mean, that's true. But to be honest, ever since I've been in this business, the top firms, the top 10 firms Mm -hmm. represented north of 50% of the capital being raised. Mm. So while in the 1980s, that might've been firms called TCW and JMB and Heitman, and in the 90s, it evolved to, you know, Morgan Stanley and some of the other investment banks. And, you know, it grew to, over time, to these public companies. Once a company is big enough to have its own internal marketing team, then Placement agents don't need to raise capital for them unless it's a product that has really been in trouble. And sometimes they'll, they'll reach out to us to try to uh, reposition a product. But but typically what we do is we help the groups that don't have a big roster of institutional investors meet the investors and develop relationships in the market so that they can grow with them. Got it. Got it. Well, we'll drill down more on that as we have the conversation. There's so much to learn and so much to learn about what people, what the appetites are today and what's working and isn't working. And, I, and I'd love to hear from you, too, in terms of, you know, especially in this time of incredible transition where, mm-hmm. you know, so many of us are working virtually. What's happening in the headhunter world, if you will, um, in terms of recruiting for talent? I mean, we see feels like there's a lot of jump balls in the air. It feels like for the first time, a lot of firms are starting to think about succession planning mm-hmm. and the public companies have done a lot of you know shakeups. So I'm really interested to hear from your standpoint, what's happening in the, uh, in the world of recruiting. Yeah. So first of all, just by background, I lead and founded a firm called Terra Search Partners. We're an executive search firm, headhunter in the vernacular, and uh, we only do real estate we're a boutique firm like you are. So we have 11 people, half on the East Coast, half on the West Coast. We have turned into working virtually. We have literally no uh, real estate footprint anymore because of COVID. When COVID hit, we expected a downturn like we had with the GFC, where we went from 20 searches on our bulletin board down to one or two overnight. And this time that didn't happen at all whatsoever. So we've had a stable business through the year. And companies are in the real estate business doing their thing. And the thing right now, since companies know they'll come out of this recession, different place for different sectors of the business, I think. But companies feel stability in the world and therefore 
it's always a chance to what does our next generation of leadership look like? There's some succession planning in that, or how do we use the opportunity of a downturn to upgrade our platform? Real estate, my belief, is becoming ever increasingly sophisticated and institutional in its operations in office and organizations. And now is better time than most to kind of make a leap in terms of those types of things. So companies are planning really well and really thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. That's generally well, that's great. No, I look forward to drilling down a little bit more in terms of what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other issue that so many of us have been thinking about is diversity issue and, and how that's playing out in the real estate companies that you work with. Yeah, huge. And it's interesting. The easy part, this will sound not correct, but the easy part has been women, right? That's been the high headline. So how do we integrate women into this business? And we will definitely talk about that in the conversation. And I think long forgotten or less of a priority has been, you know, people of color. And now that is a headline or the headline and diversity, particularly in boards, and then certainly in companies and in leadership and in the pathways for folks, it's, it is critically important. Interesting, in some of our mandates, we raise it and the clients yawn. <laughs> and in other mandates, clients lead <laughs> with it. And it's not always achievable either. So you don't want to do something that's unnatural, doesn't fit, upsets an organization just to get someone in there who may or may not be the right person. Mm-hmm. So fully cognizant of that at all times. Absolutely. So maybe let's just talk for a few minutes about the podcasting that we do. And then we'll talk about your your business, how we got here. But what brought you into podcasting and what have you found and what surprises have you had in the dozen or so conversations you've had so far? This is a relationship business and it's really all about people. So we've had you know just a lot of fun talking to a different range of investors and managers about what they do. We try to you know bring forward sort of ideas that we know institutional investors are interested in and we know our and people who we know our managers want to speak with. So mm-hmm. it's really been about kind of getting behind some of the mystique of institutional investing mm-hmm. and just you know showing that it's really just all about people. How did you get into the podcasting gig? It's a funny story, but I was begging for a leadership role at the Urban Land Institute. I kept raising my hand and I was not called upon. I was like the person in the back of the class who was kind of wildly raising my arms saying, please. And one day they came and said, hey, we have an idea for you. We're thinking of doing a podcast. Would you like to be the Terry Gross of ULI? And I nearly fell on the floor because uh, Nancy, you don't know this, but in college, the college we both went to, I hosted a radio show called Steppin' with Sleppin'. <laughs> and so coming from Steppin' with Sleppin'. Uh, I'm sure I listened to Steppin' with Sleppin'. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, I was, well, we shouldn't talk about Overland College because uh, there's probably, you know, I'm sure there were some legal things we all did and less legal, but uh, those were good days. Absolutely. So ULI, we found co-founded the podcast with ULI. And so we did about 20 of them with ULI and they decided it was off mission for them. And then I decided to keep it going because I loved it so much. And the goal that I've had has been to really two audiences. One is leaders listening to leaders to get advice from leaders. That makes sense. And we can understand that. But maybe more importantly for me, it's been hearing the voices of people from very disparate parts of the real estate business in all of its facets, all of its roles, all of its geographies in different sectors of the business or different disciplines from architects to planners to CEOs to placement agents. 
and having people understand mm-hmm. who are getting into the real estate business that they could have a career in real estate doing any of those things anywhere. And so we've been able to tell those stories. We've done 82, 80, something like that podcast so far. I think by the time I get to 200, we'll have told most of the story of the industry. And that, to me, that's fascinating because the breadth and depth of the industry is just really interesting. It is fantastic. You, you, you do kind of look at a much broader swath of the industry than we have in our, in our podcast, um, which tries to go deeper into the investment management right. aspects of the business. But I've been a member of ULI, you know, like you probably back since the 1980s. And it's such a fantastic organization mm-hmm. for that reason, mm-hmm. because it does cover the entire spectrum of what real estate's about. Yeah. Any surprises you've had in the conversations you've had? And, and I'll tell a couple too. Why don't you start? Well, I, <laughs> I've had a few insights. First of all, from people who've had extraordinary success, I've seen career paths and stories that are wide ranging. So example, Marianne Tai in New York, who's one of the leading brokers, um, knew nothing about real estate until one day when she was 36, she was on a ferry in Venice and someone kind of suggested that she might be good at real estate. And then she moved back home to New York, got into real estate, the hardest market in the hardest country in a male dominated business. And over a period of five or 10 years became the leading broker in New York. And when she kind of hit some of those headlines in the conversation, my jaw dropped when you understood the pathway of how that happened and how that success happened. That's story one. Story two is I interviewed a guy in Los Angeles about six months ago, Ricardo Pagan. And he, this guy's a kid. You know, he's in his early 30s, I think, and has done some of the largest transactions in the country. He's right now building the largest, tallest high rise in Los, downtown Los Angeles. But he did it all from Bupkis, came from Bupkis, and created from Bupkis something big and meaningful very quickly. And it's interesting, and I use the word, he walked through walls to get there. And it was shocking because when you listen to someone tell their story of walking through a wall, you go, wow, he could do that. And then the next day in Los Angeles, I interviewed Maria Hawthorne, who runs PS Business Parks. And instead of walking through walls, she walked up the corporate ladder to become the CEO of that company. And so in the 24-hour period of hearing one story of this young guy who did jaw-dropping things to this woman who blocked and tackled her way to the top, both of whom have achieved meaningful success. The diversity of those pathways and the reality of their stories just, you know, and that we get to tell them blows me away. Wow. Well, as I said, Matt, you are really an inspiration for me in in (laughs) podcasting because those are just great stories. And obviously we we all learn from stories. I think what we've done with the podcast um, to date is a little bit more topical. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've asked people to focus on, for example, we did a podcast on climate change and you know environmental issues. We did a podcast on what is a recapitalization. And we had two folks, you know, from someone from Landmark and someone from Luper Dadler talk about the actual recap that they did and what worked and what didn't and why mm-hmm. and how. We've had podcasts with institutional investors talking about kind of what their life is like, trying to get a little bit behind the wall. Mm-hmm. of those investors. We've done podcasts with institutional investors, everyone from, you know, a sovereign, Adam Gallistel at GIC, mm-hmm. to Peter Brosman, who runs an emerging manager business, to 
uh, large pension consultant, Christy Fields, to talk about how they see their business and kind of what they're doing and how they go about helping their clients and picking managers, because that's really what people want to hear. So I think we've been a little bit more focused on the investment side of people's right. business, uh, but you're quite inspirational and, you know, stay tuned. <laughs> I have to, I actually thought some, some of those stories are so inspirational and it's just great to hear about the challenges that people have to go through to get to where they are and uh, see the person behind professional. It's true, although it's interesting that since COVID, we've changed our model. So the second part of the my podcast is their stories now. And in some ways, we give short shrift to the story because I want to hear how a specific sector is dealing with COVID. So, and, you know, we, we had... Amy Rose talk about multifamily in New York City three, four months ago, right when it was it was April or May, right in the middle of stuff. And I don't want to hear someone's story in the middle of COVID without being sensitive to what's happening at the moment. And we've done the same with Black Lives Matter. So we've shifted that to be 50% at least about what's happening in the world today to that business and why is it yeah. relevant? I loved your Black Lives Matter series of interviews and listened to that. And I thought you did a great job with that. Thank you. That was, boy, we rushed that. There was like a call to action when this came together and we all were talking about nothing else, particularly in my house with yet another Oberlin graduate and my wife. And we were all nonstop thinking about the issues after George Floyd died and couldn't not use this platform to make a statement. And But hopefully something helpful about that, which I think we've done. So... Maybe. So you started to talk before about how you got into this business and the pathway that you found to become a placement agent and to found your own firm. So maybe talk through that a little bit. Sure. Well, and cut me off if it goes too long, but but starting sort of from, because it is kind of fun to talk to you. I mean, there are very few people in my life that I know before business school. Mm -hmm. And so it's fun to see a fellow OB, you know, in, in the working world, but I, you know, I grew up in New York City. I went to an all-girls academic school called Hunter High School. I left um, at 16 and went to Oberlin. Ended up graduating with a BFA in dance, actually from a different institution. And I, I then went through this kind of washer-dryer process in my 20s where I had to figure out how to support myself. I think it's... I never talked about this before, but it's just topical. My maternal grandfather died the week before my mother was born, he died in the influenza epidemic of 1919. Wow. And so I've thought a lot about, you know, as you see the horrible pictures and hear the such sad, sad stories of what's going on today. You know, this isn't something that that ends in 2020, you know, Mm -hmm. because obviously my life was forever impacted by that, you know, as a result of how my mother grew up, my mother grew up in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, my grandmother you know, had a candy stand and um, she was a working mom, a single working mom for her, the rest of her life. I think I was always, you know, that influence, my, the influence of my grandmother and my mother um, was really the driving influence for me to know that I had to figure out a way to support myself, even if I, you know, in, in my heart of hearts, wanted to be a starving artist. Yeah, I was so say- I went back to business school. So wait a minute, you have to support yourself. You have this inspiration, but you go to school and become a dancer. So I, eh, but mid twenties, you pivot from that. Yeah. And I, it, that's a whole other story. It's a story in parenting, but my, um, my father basically begged me to go back and do something where I could figure out how to support myself or do something else. And he had never, ever asked me for anything before. So I did, 
I took the GMAT, I went to Columbia, I got an MBA, and I became an investment banker. <laughs> it's not quite as bizarre as it seems because it was a little more of a logical path than being a dancer, which was sort of more of a rebellion. But I ended up going from investment banking to private, uh, to real estate private equity in the mid 1980s. So the business was really just beginning. And, you know, I started fundraising for this group called the O'Connor Group in 1985, Mm -hmm. really as the business was starting. And 25 years later, I had watched most of the original private equity investment management firms developed. And I'd raised institutional capital from most of the major investors in the business. And I was part of a small team that formed the first upgrade long before Kimco. And I started a consulting practice at one point just because of really the working mom issue was very important in my life. And I certainly, um, I think it's a really important issue to talk about, but it's changed a lot because, you know, when I started, we didn't have a BlackBerry, right? right. So it's easier today, but it's harder. It's still hard, but I started my own business. And hey, before your own business, business was just, yeah. Before your own business, where were you yeah. doing this? You were with a big firm, Wall Street? So, yeah. So, I started I started my career at Rothschild, Enterberg, and Tobin. I joined a company called the O'Connor Group in 1985. I was there for 10 years. I left after my third child was born in 96. I started a consulting business, which I called creatively the Lachine Group. Uh-huh. And I was there for 10 years until I started Park Madison Partners in 2006. So um, it's kind of 10-year period. I'm on a long run here because we're 14 years into Park Madison Partners. And, you know, it's this is this was just a logical business for me to form because it's very consistent with what I've done for my whole career. You know, today we are a partnership of talented people who, as I said before, bridge the institutional investors with investment managers and operators. And we're hired by owners who want to build relationships uh, with institutional capital to uh, to build out their businesses. There's a huge amount of mystique about the institutional investor world, which you know we're well steeped in. But before I go too far, Matt, I'd love to hear your story. We've not had a recruiter on our show. You're clearly one of the leading people in the business. So tell me a little bit how you got to, to where you are today. Yeah, so very different story. I like to describe this as I wandered, this is a biblical reference, but I wandered through the Negev as the it's when the Jews left Egypt, and I did for like 20 years in a real estate career that I almost had every function in real estate during my 20s and 30s. Somehow I fell into the business. I started the business as a lobbyist for low-income housing, and that turned into a developer role, turned into a mortgage banker role, turned into a government role at the RTC during the SNL crisis, turned into running a trade association called the Multifamily Housing Institute. And at age 40, I was running this group that wound up disappearing into ULI. And my wife had a job transfer to the West Coast. So I had this very disparate and very DC-oriented background, very broad background in real estate, moved to the West Coast. I'm 40 years old. And the month we moved, I was actually on the cover of National Real Estate Investor, which is just weird. And but <laughs> there I am unemployed with a cover of a magazine, but no career, no job, and wasn't sure what to do. And on the other side of the country from where I'd grown up, and I met with a couple of recruiters and one of them kind of, ah, I'm going to get this guy. So instead of get me a job, he gave me a job. And I started working <laughs> with him and uh, this guy named Peter Hall. We had a company called Argonaut Partners and I was a fish in water. I'd been a fish out of water and all of a sudden I was swimming in a pond that made sense to me. And what I slowly, maybe quickly discovered was that this particular role was just for me. 
And there was something in it that fit my background, fit my experience, fit my skills. And I felt for the first time, and I think I knew this early on, that I could be great at it. And I also felt for the first time that I could sit with a CEO and have a conversation and be strategic and valuable. And as a mid-level acquisitions guy, I brought no value to anybody. But in this particular role with my voice, it worked out. And so that started this career that's been now about 25 years. And um, I was with a couple different firms, including Hydric and Struggles, one of the big bulge bracket firms in the business, and learned the business, learned my trade, and then eventually started Terra Search Partners, uh, maybe when I realized I didn't like having a boss, or I couldn't have a boss, or I couldn't keep a job. I'm not sure which it was, but I had a different attitude towards the business than most did because I was trying to create meaning and trying to create a deep way to do this not just put numbers on the board. And that led to the founding of our company. And now we're 14, 15 years old. Wow. Well, it is amazing when you figure out what you're good at and what you love. It's very powerful. I don't remember the moment in time, but when you start your own business and then you kind of realize this is just it, you can't work for somebody else again. It's an interesting moment, but I always thought that I, I used to think that there would be a day when I would you know, kind of run a global marketing business. And they came when I realized I'd have to have a boss and that wasn't good work for me. It's interesting for me when I started the firm, I just wanted to be, this sounds really crazy, but I just wanted to be left alone to apply my trade really well. And so I wanted one or two partners and we would parallel play and not get in each other's way, but somehow we'd have synergies between us for marketing and all that stuff. And what happened over the years is I found less interest in plying my trade by myself than in actually building a business. I liked mentoring other people. I like having a volume of business. I like consulting with clients more than I did the day-to-day work of the search. So I needed to leverage and then it became a firm and it became natural for me to be working with, collaborating with and leading others. And that was a total surprise to me. Never imagined that. It's incredibly satisfying to build a business, though, and it's kind of mm-hmm. funny to build a service business in the real estate world because most of the folks who we talk with who've built businesses, you know, build businesses by buying buildings, and then they've got all this stuff that they have to manage. Right. But in many ways, when you're building a service business or when you've built one, you're just as good as your next. I, I always think about Merce Cunningham. Obviously, I was trained as a dancer. Mm-hmm. You know, and Merce Cunningham says, you know, a dancer has to go into the studio and prove themselves every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're in the placement business or you're in the search business, it's kind of as good as your next transaction. You have to keep going. You know, it's, it's really about kind of building it over and again. And, and that's, that's different than a lot of the real estate business. So I sometimes, I, you know, I sometimes think about, you know, how I ended up on this side and the differences with, you know, the people that we work with Mm -hmm. because they have a different footprint. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because it's interesting. Much of the inspiration for me in how I held myself came from other quote unquote producers in the business. So while your clients who you raise money for are building both operating platforms and portfolios of companies, there's so many folks in the business who are mortgage bankers or who are brokers and, but it is transactional, right? And then the question is, how do you take a transactional business and make it a sustaining business so that you are I view every transaction I do builds the base to do more better. They don't stand on their own. They keep going. It's always been important to me to build a business and to build a brand 
and to build a reputation. And everything that we've done at Park Madison has been about that. So we'll never take on an assignment if it doesn't fit with who we are and what we do. And frankly, the podcast is largely, you know, it's a lot of it is about just maintaining, sort of building the brand and broadening our audience. So that's, you know, for me, my goal in starting this business has been to build something that lasts long beyond me, which is why I'm really excited to have partners who are, you know, a generation younger than I am, who've got now have lots of experience and, you know, they will be able to, you know, run this business with years, decades of experience long after I'm not doing this anymore. Well, congratulations on that. Cause the hardest thing is to find that next generation of partner to keep a business going when it's a service business. Well, you know, one of the things that I always say to younger people and to my kids when they're asking for advice and starting out working is look for jobs or opportunities where you find people you think you can work with who who will support you and mentor you because those will be the people that you will either they'll either bring you along to your to their next job or if you ever start a company, you know, those will be the people that you draw from mm-hmm. to build out your team and I and I think, you know, I'm fortunate. It took me a long time to figure all this stuff out. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, frankly, being trained as a dancer and, you know, kind of living in a world of, you know, women when I was younger, it, it just, it wasn't an easy transition for me to kind of build those relationships early on. But I, you know, that's the beauty of, and, and the fortune of having a long life. Yeah. It, how much of this is I have a bunch of questions, but how much of this is performance? Because there's some performance quality to a transaction and to getting hired to do something and then performing to make it work. I mean, it's a great question. I probably it's probably instinctive. I don't think yeah. about it very much, but <laughs> I spent every day of my childhood through my early twenties going into a dance studio and re- you know doing the bar. Mm-hmm. So rehearsing, doing the technique and the training, mm-hmm. but knowing that it was all towards, you know, performing and creating something for an audience to see. Mm-hmm. And so I am, I, you know, I am a natural performer. I've done that all my life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, it's probably all part of it. I mean, I, I, I once gave a lecture at sometimes teach up at Columbia, and I think that I, I named it everything I ever needed to know about starting a business I learned in dance class. Mm. So, Wow. And Another question on this, and hopefully I asked this the right way, but the preamble will make total sense. Real estate's long been a male-dominated business. And there are certain functional areas within real estate. This is headhunter talk for the different parts of the real estate business and disciplines. But there's some functions that have always been friendlier to women. And one of those functions has been capital raising. If you look across the industry, maybe 50-50, headhunting the same way in terms of the people who do what I do. But talk about that a little bit, navigating through a male-dominated business and then in this particular function where you may have found, where you found yourself successful. Yeah, I really, I bristle at that. I know. I I have people in this business who call the marketing world the pink ghetto. And it's, if you look around, you can understand why. I have long advised women graduating from school, business school, whatever, to get an acquisitions job, mm-hmm. even if they decide they don't like it, just put it on your resume and figure out if you can, mm-hmm. because if you're ever going to start your own investment management business, you need to be an acquisitions professional. Mm-hmm. I fell into what I'm doing. I was an investment banker and then I 
when I went to work at the O'Connor Group, it was an amoeba organization, and Jerry O'Connor said to me, well, what do you think your title should be? And I, I mean, I was a 20-something-year-old, and I said, I don't know, Director of Equity Investments? And so he said, great. So I used business cards that said Director of Equity Investments. This is actually funny. Well, I don't know if you know who Glenn Refrano is, mm-hmm. but Glenn Refrano is this unbelievably successful, brilliant guy in the real estate business. He sat in the office next to me, and he, he all of a sudden didn't want to talk to me. And I was like, Glenn, what's going on? And he goes, well, I, he said, your title director of equity investment, because I thought that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, Glenn, you are director of equity investments. Absolutely. But it was, so I, I fell into it because I guess I was good at it. And it was the natural, it, it was a place I could fit in that organization. Mm-hmm. Someone literally threw the money market directory, that big green book mm-hmm. at me, which was how you found the names of investors in those days. And I started calling investors and raising capital. But I do think it's really important for women to push to be on the investment side. It's not always the right thing. I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been right for me, but mm-hmm. it's great experience and, and everyone should get a shot at it if, uh, you know, if you have the acumen for it. Can I, can I amplify your comment or, or state it differently a little bit, which is you have to understand the business. If you want to be, I'll, I'll say it grossly, but if you want to be a salesperson and you come up the sales route, that's what you know and you're it's light if you come up through the investment world and you understand how the business really works and then sometime through that you might come into your business to either be a headhunter or to be a capital raiser you come with a lot of substance and i think it's almost lazy to do it the other way for people of this generation who want to go right to that place it is a relationship business, but relationships are based on experience and what, yeah. you know, the things that you've done. And I'm sure for you, I mean, you, because you deal with such a broad range of jobs and parts of the industry, sometimes people may come to you for a search and you might just have to try to figure out what that job is. And it might, you know, I don't know. How do you figure that out? How do you put yourself in that role to figure out who the right fit would be if you've never done it? or never really seen it in an organization. It's interesting. You just asked, uh, made a really, really good point. A uh, client will come to us and they'll say, hey, we're looking for an X. And then we'll, the first thing we do is we say, well, give us the context in which X exists. You know, CFO, tell us the lead, senior leadership team and who the other leaders are and their strengths and weaknesses so we could define the kind of CFO you're looking for or the kind of investment person you're looking for? Who are they surrounded by? And who are you as the CEO? What kind of CFO do you need? And so each of those things wind up defining a role that seems like it might have a flat job description. You know, they're all the same, which they're not, but let's pretend they are. But it's the context of all that stuff. And so it's that kind of understanding and drilling down that changes the game so often. Right. You have to you have to put together like a series of Venn diagrams mm-hmm. of what that organization looks like and who does what to whom and where they overlap and then what you know what they need. When we're doing our best work, but it's interesting, you probably have this in your business. Oftentimes people say, just shut up and get me one of them. <laughs> and and those are usually lower levels. So that's <laughs> kind of more right. you know, that's about half of what we do. But the interesting half is the, hey, let's think this through and what really what do you really need? What are you really trying to accomplish? And where does that person come from? And we have more experience knowing that than the hiring manager often does. So we're adding a lot of value in the think, thought process of that, not just finding you know, relevant candidates. It's the context for it that matters. Right. 
And that skill set is so important for us in the placement business because when we go to interview a prospective client to figure out, you know, if we want to raise money for them or how we can raise money for them, we really have to understand how that client makes decisions. Mm -hmm. And nobody ever tells you how they make decisions. I mean, it's it's the process. Right. And the process is what exists between the spaces and between the people. Mm -hmm. And obviously the process and decision-making process is very different in, for example, a COVID period than it would be during a, a boom period where everybody's, you know, just out, you know, running around doing deals. So trying to understand how people really work within an organization, how they feel about it, how they'll work, how they'll be when the tide goes out, you know, Warren Buffett's expression, mm-hmm. um, is a critical part of what we bring to the table. And when we call investors and say we're representing a certain firm, you know, they know that we've thought not just about the strategy and whether their track record ties, but about the people mm-hmm. and whether they're cohesive and they're likely to be together for a long period of time. Because obviously when investors are signing up, they're signing up, you know, oftentimes, you know, a 10 year affidavit where mm-hmm. they have no, no discretion. They need to know that team's going to be in place. Yeah. Let's talk more about that. So I'm, this is one of my subjects that I'm fascinated with. I actually did a series of articles in San Francisco interviewing CEOs and what I wanted to real estate CEOs, what I wanted to interview them on was not their portfolio, but their platform, their business platform. And I was trying to differentiate the meaning of business platform, people, systems, longevity, processes, technology from, okay, here's our 50 assets and how they fit together and how brilliant we were building or buying them. So talk about in your business, how you look at both sides of that, and then how you translate that and really get under the sheets to figure that out for your investors. Well, you know, art and science, right? Yeah. So just in terms of what we do, we will look for to take on, you know, four or five clients every year. Mm-hmm. And we're looking for strategies that, you know, from an investment standpoint, just make sense today. Mm-hmm. You know, so today, obviously, the market is mature. Um, we're looking for strategies that complement investors' existing portfolios. So, you know, it may be operating expertise, it may be a property type, it may be a region, but given what's happened during, you know, 2020, Mm -hmm. we're really, we've been focused on multifamily, we've been focused on workforce housing, we've been focused on industrial, cold storage, data centers. And obviously, if you put, I think Mary Legend said this this morning on on a ULI podcast. If you put the word distress in front of it, you can raise the you know the price by ten percent. Mm-hmm. So, um, or she, that was said on a podcast that she was speaking on, which I thought was great. So we'll look for an investment strategy that makes sense um, wherever in, in the market period of time, and then you know we look for managers who have a clear proof statement. They've that team, who's the team? Mm-hmm. Is there a team? You know, long gone are the days where, you know, the guy in the corner office is enough, mm-hmm. but you have to have a team and you have to have longevity of the team and you have to have a track record that proves that you can execute on the strategy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way you really know of that, we've talked to managers sometimes for years and we just watch them and watch how they operate. And, you know, definitely we've made our share of mistakes. You know, I think investors have gotten very sophisticated about understanding how their management firms evolve. And so, you know, while they used to squeeze people very hard, for example, on fees, now they understand if they want that firm to do well and hire the right team, they can't squeeze them that hard on fees because they won't be able to hire the people they need. Right. So part of our job also is that just making sure that the structure of the fund works, the fees are sufficient, and mm-hmm. that the firm will be able to continue to raise capital 
so that it can continue to, to, to grow. You know, when you have time periods like the GFC when promotes went to zero, um, and in fact, clawbacks came into effect, you know, you had firms just basically devolving and you had a whole new slew of firms evolve in the, you know, 2010 to mm-hmm. 13 timeframe because um, there was no incentive for people to stick around. Will we see that again uh, post 2020? A little bit less so, but it depends upon the strategy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how much? I when, said a lot of different things in there, but yeah. you did. So let's pick apart a couple of them because they're interesting and things that you didn't say. When you look at those management teams, do you look at diversity of age? Do you look at diversity of gender? Do you look at diversity of racial background? How does that fit? Yeah, it clearly today we absolutely do, and it's somewhat dependent upon the strategy and their location. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's a firm in New York, we would absolutely expect them to be far more diverse than um, if they were in a certain part of, part of the country. But mm-hmm. um, we wouldn't work with a firm today that didn't have a commitment to having a diverse workforce. And I think that that message has gone through to, to, you know, to people loud and clear. Is that you or your investors or both? And are firms now led by black or brown people, are they trendy? I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a celebratory way. But are you raising capital for any firms like that right now? I spent the afternoon with a firm that's run by a diverse person. And, you know, we certainly know that could be an advantage in fundraising today. But it's never, you look, at the, at the beginning, you have to have investment expertise and the team and yep. the track record and the right structure if you don't put all those things together, it doesn't really matter what else you have. But if you can put those things together and find a firm that's got, that's led by, it's very hard to, you know, there are very few firms that have mm-hmm. diverse leadership. But I would say that investors today, every investor is going to look at diversity as a key criterion in investing. I've had a handful of investors say to me, we won't invest in another real estate firm because we've got enough unless they are minority led. Mm. That's an unusual and somewhat, you know, extreme position, but there are certainly groups that are trying to do that just to to make a statement mm-hmm. and to and not to make a statement, but just to to make sure that it happens that you have to lead by action. Uh-huh. And are investors willing to pay a, a premium, or do they take a long view in terms of environmental uh, aspects of a portfolio in a business model? Can they underwrite that? Are investors concerned about environmental issues? Yeah, environmental risk to a portfolio or environmental stability to a portfolio and climate change. Is that priced into this or no? Interestingly, no, not yet. I think it will be. We certainly think it's very important. But I think until either the insurance market or the mortgage market starts to make it too expensive Mm -hmm. to own those properties or more expensive to own those properties, investors are less focused on, on sustainability as a, as a, I mean, they will ask the questions. They want to make sure that the manager is thinking it through, Mm -hmm. but they're not making go, no go decisions because they don't believe that the manager is um, focused sufficiently on sustainability. I haven't seen that. Hmm. And it may be that insurance companies become the proxy for decisions on that, that then flows through to our industry. Yeah. I think that the, again, I'm talking about institutional investment as a business, Diversity and inclusion and governance are really the, the fulcrum issues in terms of making manager decisions. Governance, just in terms of getting comfortable that there is a decision-making process, that it's institutional, and that the process holds. 
that's adhered to. I hope you don't mind me grilling you on these different things. But in, another one, you mentioned workforce housing. And I think duration of fund is critical to some of these strategies. And the typical strategy, I don't know, the typical hold period of a fund that you raise might be 10 years, 7 years, 15 years. What's the What's it been? And is it lengthening? It's the long question. <laughs> yeah. So typically, it's a three-year investment period and a five-year term, five mm-hmm. or six-year term. So all in, it's eight years with two-year, two one-year extensions. So it's eight to 10. Mm-hmm. Investors, and we were talking about this a lot. I think this is going to be a big issue in 2021. Investors are starting to talk about wanting longer terms because they want the cash flow. Mm-hmm. And so you know, when I started in this business, portfolios were 60-40, 60% fixed income and 40% equity. And then real estate came in for, you know, 5 to 10%. Mm-hmm. That 60% fixed income, you know, which was earning double digits again back right. in the 1980s, but was, was certainly earning, you know, the actuarial return up until recently, you know, with rates down at 2% and debt below, you've got to come up with some proxies for cash flow. And real estate, I think, will continue to, people will look more and more to real estate for that. And I think the vehicles will have to evolve. And that value-add opportunity fund vehicle of a average life of three or four years and an IRR hurdle, mm-hmm. people will start to rethink that. And we'll see, you know, obviously open-end funds are different, but, you know, there aren't that many closed-end core funds. We'll see how that evolves over the next couple of years. I think that will become more important for investors. Well, we'll keep talking about that maybe in this conversation, but certainly on leading voices with future guests. What else in COVID are you seeing that is interesting in a change in mindset and maybe thinking post-COVID because it will be post at some point? That's where we started the conversation, but not necessarily what are people investing in today because it's hot because of the pandemic, but you know, in a couple of years when the market stabilizes back out into real estate asset classes... Any thoughts from your investors and and, op- and potential operators who are trying to start business? You know, I think you will see a new squad of investment management businesses mm-hmm. created out of this. Some will have distress in front of them. I mean, clearly, the whole hospitality business is going to be restructured. Mm-hmm. It will probably be the best buying opportunity of our generation. Mm-hmm. Um, what will emerge out of that? Well, I think that'll be. <laughs> but you know. I would say that what we're focused on these days is really more the niche strategies and trying to just figure out, follow technology and figure out where that's going to take the real estate business over the next year or two. And then, you know, real estate as a cash flow option. Mm-hmm. And those, those are really the themes that we're, that we're starting to, to form for 2021. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, what do you, what are you seeing in the search world? Do you, are you seeing, do you seeing remote working permanently? changing the way people think about where they need to live and also what the offices look like? Uh, The answer is yes, but it's anecdotal. And we argue with our clients, but we get for some selfish reasons. So I'll give you a couple funny examples. So one is our company went remote and will probably stay remote. And that has a lot to do with who we are and you know, the life cycle of the people in the firm and all that, but we work really well remotely. And so we got rid of a real estate footprint. We'd moved into co-working about a year ago, and that was a wonderful move because then when COVID happened, we were optionality, we had it. And so we were able to get rid of the real estate footprint, which really helped. With most of our clients during COVID, they've dealt well with remote working, of course. People can't, they say they can't wait to get back to work. And 
clients are insisting that there's a headquarters in large part and that senior leaders are at the headquarters office and in the city of the headquarters office. And the examples of our existing clients who we're working with today, have we seen a meaningful trend towards people having a more distributed locations among the executive team? We haven't. Not yet. I think, though, that there'll always now be more flexibility because we've created muscle memory of how to be flexible about that. So does that mean that senior managers, you know, the CFO in the office three days a week? Is the CEO in the office three days a week? Can they work from a remote location largely? And, and I think that's now really feasible. Do people work remotely from outside the company's footprint even? A lot of this, you know, people have been doing this. New York people are all living in Connecticut or up the Hudson Valley somewhere or on the island or in Florida. We've all been doing that for the last eight months. And I, so I have trouble envisioning going back to the same way it was two years ago. So that's my sense of it. What I also don't know is what becomes the rhythm of those ways that we as an industry get together. You know, what's the rhythm of ULI? or NMHC or these conferences where 10,000 people come together and do a lot of drinking and hanging out and learning together, will that, that be the same in three years? I, it will take some time to get back there, but then I think they'll have alternative mechanisms for doing that. And then I also wonder, mm-hmm. for young people start, it's just really easy for me. I'm 64. I have a lot of relationships. I built them over my career and I you know take value of them and I maintain them and they matter and it's the world to me. But if I was 30 in establishing relationships, so I have 30 in finding a mentor. Could I do that on Zoom? And the answer is no, I believe. So okay. it's a very different thing at the life cycle, the person you ask the question to for those things. What do you think about what this all means for working moms? Do you think it gives working moms more flexibility ultimately, or hmm. does it go the other way? Well, It's interesting. So one thing that you said early in the podcast, and maybe I'm remembering this from something else, but what do you do when there's that couple of years or half a dozen years where you can't go to the office every day, where you have to be available as a woman with kids or now as a man with kids, right? What does that mean in career planning? What does that mean for companies pretending that doesn't exist, right? Because you used to hide that stuff. And during COVID, no one's hit anything mm-hmm. because you're on the phone with someone, their dog jumps on their lap, their kid runs across the screen, and we all laugh about it. So we've all become really human. It's one of the beauties of this thing. You know, I was on the phone with the three senior leaders from one of my clients, household name, and all of this was a, a month into COVID, and everyone was in their study. Every It was all guys. Everyone had beards. Everyone was in a t-shirt. I still am. And... And we were talking and we humanized so much from the white shirts and gray suits that we were wearing six months before in my office. I don't think we go back to that in the same way. So we've seen, we've had a window into people's lives in a way that I think will change things. So back to the question about women, that comes at the same time when we're all so much more sensitive. We have a woman vice president almost soon, but, and I am tearing up, I am tearing up. So the whole world's changed. In those ways. And so some of that, you don't go back to the ways that we've been doing it for years and years. What, what do yeah, you think? And it'll be interesting, I think, to see, you know, you live in San Francisco and I live in New York. It'll be interesting to see how those communities come back. I mean, they've both been decimated, but yet, you know, I was walking around New York City the other day and thinking, oh, I see why everybody wants to live here. It's such a fabulous place. And if only 
after running around the reservoir, we could go, you know, have brunch somewhere and then go to a Broadway show tonight. And, you know, right. you could go meet someone for breakfast in the morning. It's just so such a great lifestyle. I feel like it'll be back, you know, it'll take a few years, but it'll be back. And San Francisco is a little different because it was the sleepy place that became, you know, the tech haven of the world. Right. You know, will people have to come back to San Francisco to, to live or will they choose to, or will they, you know, will it be different in San Francisco? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. So, well, let's drill in New York cause that's an easier one. And there was a moment in my <laughs> podcast, I interviewed the head of city planning for San Francisco this year and a half ago, John Ram, then the head of planning. And I asked him if the move back to the city was a fad or was it permanent? And he said, Matt, the suburbs were a fad. Human history has densification as its trend line. And so the cities are here to stay. They always will be. The cities have made it through pandemics and plagues in the past. And the great cities and the amount of infrastructure that they have that in New York needs some help. But the, the great cities aren't going to go away. It's not going to change. People will continue to want to live there. I'm 100% sure of that. It will survive. It will survive in a different way. You know, what will it mean for the office buildings? And will people, again, what we talked about before, will they come to work three days a week instead of five days a week? That'll make the subway better, but maybe everyone's still coming in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, so the subways are the same. San Francisco is a, is a conundrum, though, for me in some ways. It's such a fabulous city to live in. We have natural, we have both the economic drivers and the technology drivers, and we have natural beauty that is unimaginable, which is why I love living here. But it will change. And, and the amount of density that we had around the tech space that really drove the growth over the last 10 years, those people could work anywhere. And the tech industry knows it better than others. So I question that. And then issues then, because we have concurrent social issues that sit right on top of everything we do, like homelessness. And you know it, it's unbearable and non-sustainable. So if you have homelessness here or in New York and you have Social infrastructure like the subway that doesn't work and needs billions and billions and billions of dollars. These are things we have to deal with and, and are just long-term challenges. And last comment to that, all of those points have a real estate impact and a real estate solution. So I think one of the beautiful things about our business is that the leaders of our business going forward over the next 20 years will be changing mm -hmm. our built environment from an environmental standpoint, climate change standpoint, They'll be changing it from a social equity standpoint, from an affordability of housing, so and the way that we like to live, work, and play. And it will all be built in a way that maybe protects against the next pandemic so we're able to shut the doors again. And that's on us. A lot of that stuff's on us. So there's huge opportunity among the real estate space to lead those transitions and changes. Well, the one question that people keep asking us is, can you raise money uh, virtually? Because mm -hmm. obviously our world changed dramatically. And it's, I'll turn around and ask you the same question. It's, have people learned how to hire people virtually? Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're both in relationship businesses and much easier to get to know somebody in three dimensions than two dimensions as, as we're doing, you know, whether it's on Zoom or, you know, with, just with your voice. I'm sure you've read these studies that people communicate 80% of what they know about somebody through their body language. Mm. And you know, body language on Zoom looks a little different than it would be if you were sitting across, you know, having to be all with somebody or even at a conference room table. So we have been raising money virtually. Uh, thank goodness. It's slower. And I think, it, you know, we stalled everybody. Every, everything kind of went on a hit the pause button for the first, call it three months, but somewhere during and after the summer, 
And when I talk about raising money, obviously, if you're reinvesting with an existing manager and you're just going into the next fund, that's a different something that's a lot easier. Well, I'm talking about new institutional investors going to new manager relationships or, you know, recapping a portfolio with a new investor. We've been doing it through a lot of phone calls and Zooms. And then, you know, people are flying and they are driving and, you know, just doing it with fewer people around and very selectively. So when you get to those later stages of the conversation, they're going to visit the assets and having dinner with the managers and, you know, they're signing the documents. So, so it is happening. I think we will change marketing going forward to some extent where some of those first meetings will happen by Zoom or phone and people will get used to that. And, you know, maybe I'll have fewer Delta miles, but that's just fine with me. But at the end of the day, we'll probably be back to traveling substantially with our managers as soon as we can. But I'm curious to know, have you, how have you been able to uh, conduct searches? Have you been able to close them without people meeting in person? Some. Depends on the level. And one comment to yours is that I bet it becomes half as much travel over time, that you'll find the efficiencies of we need to close in person or we need the introduction meeting in person, but we could get rid of three of the trips and, and I bet that'll happen. I just think it will stabilize out to, hey, we could do half of this in Zoom and half of it in person, and it's cost-effective, time-effective, body-effective. Um, and we're finding the same in search. We have closed searches where people have never met. I don't know how people integrated to a company fully on Zoom, corporate culture-wise, in terms of a job response, but I think it's really hard. But we have closed some searches where people haven't met in person. Most of them the people do meet in a last meeting. And for me, that's, gosh, that's what I do. I've been interviewing people on Zoom for years. Now, I, I'm comfortable with it because my words, I give it a lot of space. And, you know, if you're directed, it's like people say Zoom's exhausting because the meetings are, you get to the point, you get it done and you get off and then you go into the next one and that's too much intensity. And in an interview, I like to have a lot of open space because it's in the open space I'm learning about the people. But for our clients who aren't used to doing that, and they're more used to Zoom, of course, now, but I think closing is a dinner. Closing is it. And we have what we call roll up the sleeves, ultimate. The last interview is roll up the sleeves, sit around a conference table and brainstorm the job for a couple hours. And it's not an interview, right? You get people out of the interview mindset into the problem solving and pretending you're working mindset. And that really should take place in person. And of course, COVID will be over. And we'll all move into that anyhow. So what do we do in this interim period? You still have to build your organizations. So people are doing the combination of these things. But we've had a lot of clients meet with a lot of people. Someone flew across the country to go to Atlanta, having dinner with CEO of a company today. But people are also, it's interesting, they're really sensitive to each other. So people are, I'm going to give you the space to not want to be with me. I'm going to give you the space to sit between with a plastic thing between us. I'm going to give you the space to have a mask on because I'm going to let you, if you're hypersensitive to that or you're hyperliberal about that, all power to you. I find that really interesting. It's terrific. And thank goodness we live in a world that's you know respectful in that way. Yeah. Because there's no right or wrong answer, right? It's just about people's comfort level. I'm, I, I would... Love to just ask you about something you said where you give yourself a lot of space. Mm -hmm. Is it space within the time of the Zoom call or between calls? How do you think about oh, that? Oh, between calls, I'm horrible. So, you know, you run to the restroom really quick because, it, no, it's in a call. And the question is, if you're interviewing someone, and, and I have a very particular interview style that 
listeners of the podcast get a little flavor of, but it's different when I, you know, interview a candidate for a job. But it's very dense in terms of the interview. But I'm looking for what's in between the answers and I'm looking for what's in between the person. I'm looking for the delivery. I'm looking for the human being that's there. And it's not necessarily the answers to the question. And the one way that I find that works is, you know, if I interview someone for a job, it's it's 90 minutes virtually every time. And people go like, wait a minute, like I could do an interview in 20 minutes. I know within five seconds if I like them or not. And I'm professional at this. And I say, nope, takes me 90 minutes. And it actually, I usually don't make my decision about the candidate because everyone who gets to me is probably qualified, but I don't make a decision about the candidate until minute 70, give or take, because I'm I'm sitting there rooting for the, the end of the interview to get to wow me. I want to, because I hear their whole story and I want the story to culminate in a, and boom, I've put it all together. And that's why I'm ready for this next job. So I suspend decisions until then. That's just my style. But so I'm giving a lot of space to find out those things that I might find out. I don't know if that is, I think that's what I was referring to. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. And I'm, I, you know, I, I'm so interested to understand how you interview people and what you're really looking for and what you learn, you know, what questions, how do you go about figuring out what to ask someone to find out what you want to learn? Yeah. So, well, I have a, again, I have a style that does this and and I have a belief. So my belief is that I can very clearly ascertain the skill set and experience that I'm looking for through an interview with a candidate. And I'm really good at that. And, you know, call that the, the logic side of things. And I'm intuitive on the other side. Who, what are they like? Do I like them? What do they behave like? And I'm half accurate about that. And so I actually don't interview for that. I don't ask any attitude questions and all that stuff that people say they do. And I grill them for the 90 minutes about their career path and their life story. It always starts with where they grew up with their parents do. So it makes them vulnerable. I hope no one's listening to this, but just immediately go into the becoming a human being. And I hear the whole story and a lot of recruiters, they want to know what you do now. Well, I want to know how you got here. I want to hear about that dance story, right? It's really important to me to know that you started in dance because it envelops all the rest of your life and your story. So I spend a fair amount of time on that. And then I fast forward through the current job to see if the current job brought it all together. And so the intuitive side of me is picking up all all tons of stuff about who they are, what they're like, how their behaviors are. And I intuitively describe it to my client, but I precisely describe that they're qualified or not. And I also, last comment is I don't pretend to be able to decide for my client if they're going to like somebody or not. I don't know you're going to click with someone. But I can I can tell you what my impressions were of them from a like standpoint, and I could be again really precise about what their skill sets and experience are, where they did it. So long answer, but I love what I do. It's so much fun. And the last thing is, when I do those ninety minute interviews, since I've decided long ago to make that commitment to do that with so many people, you know, only a third of these people get interviews with the clients. So I have to be doing something else in those ninety minutes for my own self. So what I'm doing is I'm gathering it excuse me, this is a technical podcast word. I'm gathering a shit ton of information and I have a bad memory, but the information is weaving a very dense web of knowledge. I forget the details, but the knowledge of all those things that all these people have told me about all where they were and who their bosses were and what their company was like at what decade, that's really interesting to me. So I fill the 90 minutes with that as much as the other things. That's fascinating. And I suppose I have a similar sort of 
set of, you know, experiences because we hear, you know, new managers come in to us, you know, four or five times a week. We hear these stories of their, you know, what they do. I have to admit that I keep notebooks and I've been cleaning out my office and, you know, 25 years of notebooks is a little daunting. I'm not quite sure what the heck to do with them. I threw a bunch out when we moved to co-working. I threw, I have a notebook and each notebook lasts me three months. And I had about four boxes. I had 12 years of notebooks and I threw out, except for the last couple of years, finally, because I think the archives of Matt Sleppin will not be uh, hosted at a university library anytime soon. <laughs> Touche. Well, yeah. I'm uh, sure I should follow your lead. <laughs> no, you may want to keep them. Hey, we should wrap up. The last question on leading voices is always, what is your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business? I would approach your early jobs looking for people who you like and who will mentor you and where you can learn skills. And if you can build relationships early in your career, they will stay with you for the rest of your career. And obviously, you know, if you are lucky enough to have a vision of where you want to go, just keep that vision in mind and just know this is a stepping stone because those early jobs oftentimes are filled with, filled with drudgery. One of the best things someone ever said to me when I took my first job out of business school was, you know, most of this job is drudgery, but then there's just those moments when it's just really great. And that stuck with me. And I lived for those moments and then thought, well, what, was, what is it about those moments that I really like? To kind of use that as I found my next job and my next job. So I would say if you're not lucky enough to know where you want to go, which I wasn't, um, sounds like maybe, you know, you weren't either do that, figure out what makes you happy. What were the great parts of the day or the week? And how do I get more of that going forward? Mm-hmm. So that's my advice. How about you? What's your advice? Yeah, it's interesting. I'll piggyback on some of the things you just said and what we've talked about on the podcast. One is I tell people this all the time it, and it fits with the relationship. It's a long game. And the only thing you have for the whole period of time in your life is your relationships and your reputation. And so if you start out by treating people well and caring about those relationships, that over the years it will build in a huge way and it matters. But it's a long game and behavior in the long game really matters. Second thing is, we talked about this before, kind of starting as a salesperson versus starting knowing the business. And so gain substance, uh, as much substance as you can early in your career, and then see where that goes. Don't be scared of specialization, either in a functional area that you find really fits you, or if it's industrial, you know, if it's one of the food groups or a subgroup within the food group, it might be seniors housing, not multifamily, or it might be industrial. But I think most people who I know have been successful have not been successful as generalists across sectors. Those are the opportunity fund people, and they make the most money, so maybe that's where you need to be. But for so many people, it's specialization. The last podcast was with uh, Alan Gold, who runs IQHQ, which is a biotech real estate company. It's his fourth company he started. But his specialization in that space has paid huge dividends uh, financially and then in terms of the network. So I think those are things. And then what I often say to people, and I wrote an article about this some years ago, because I found myself in my career at age 40, which I said before in the podcast, and it was pure serendipity that that I was able to find myself, but I had all these strands that we were able to come together at the same time. So I'd worked really hard before that, but it didn't make sense. And when it did, it came together in a really good way. Matt, I can see why you're so successful at Terra Search Partners. You're so much fun to talk to. And it feels like there's, you know, lots more we could talk about and just have a good time. So I've really enjoyed the last 
however long it's been. <laughs> Lost track of time, but I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Nancy, thank you. Same to you in every way. And we will keep talking and we'll have a reunion at some point in person, not on Zoom. I look forward to that. Thank you. Great. Take care. That's all for this week's episode of Refi Radio's Innovations in Real Estate. We hope you enjoyed the different flavor this month. We'd like to thank Matt for his time and his insights. If you liked what you heard from Matt, please head over to the Leading Voices in Real Estate feed on your favorite podcast platform and give them a subscribe and a five-star review. We'd also like to thank Park Madison Partners for working with Refi on this podcast series. For more information on the firm, please visit their website at parkmadisonpartners.com. This episode was produced and edited by Peter Benson, with help from Samantha Rowan and myself. Theme music is by Jazzhar. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Refi Radio, in partnership with Park Madison Partners. I'm Will Moyo. Until next time.